take a class at your local improv theater. Take an intro. And most of them have an intro to improv thing. It's maybe an hour. And really what it does is it makes you take yourself less seriously, right? It, it teaches you to listen. Got- it teaches you to get out of your head. Jeff, you said you have the next question in your head while I'm talking. That means you're not listening to what? me. So you have, it teaches you to listen and get out of your head. Could, could you, Jeff, Wayne, what he's telling you, you to take, he's telling you to take an improv class is what he's telling you. To I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. Welcome to the Triple Point Podcast, a podcast for those working at the intersection of weather and climate technology, and society. We focus on innovators and leaders working to make our communities safe and resilient in the face of a dynamic and ever-changing world. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff Cunningham. And I am Ryan Harris. And man, do we have a fun, informative, and hilarious episode to share with you. This month, Wayne McKenzie from NOAA's Technology Partnerships Office stopped by the Triple Point to share how NOAA squeezes all the value it can out of the technology they develop. He also shares some really valuable life and career lessons that improv theater has to offer. It's a fun show, but before we get into it, Jeff has a quick announcement about the Triple Point Referral Program. Jeff, over to you. Hey, this is Jeff. I want to take a moment to talk to you about our referral program. That is the Triple Point Podcast Referral Program and 2023 Holiday Giveaway. Go to the webpage and click on the top of the page where it says, click here for more details on the referral program and 2023 holiday giveaway. If you click on that, it takes you to the webpage that gives the rules for the referral program and the holiday giveaway. It's very simple. You sign up to the newsletter and then you refer your friends. When they sign up and then reference your email address, you get credit. After 10 referrals, I will send you a triple point coffee mug for free And then if you get 25 referrals credited to your email address and you, I will sign you up for a contest, which is run by me, that will allow you the chance to win a Tempest Weatherflow station. Go to the website, go to the top of the page, and then click here for more details on the referral program and 2023 holiday giveaway. Thanks. Well, Marta, Jeff. How are you today? I'm doing all right. How are you doing, Ryan? I'm doing well. Product placement. That's right. Okay. So for the people who, who only have the audio going, Jeff is showing off the triple point mug. Don't you have some sort of special offer going on right now? Um, yeah. So we've got a referral program going on right now for our listeners. So if you're subscribed, uh, if you can get 10 of your colleagues or friends or family to sign up for our email newsletter, We'll send you a coffee which is free, mug, by the way, which is free. We'll send you a coffee mug. If you can get 25 referrals, we'll actually sign you up for a contest that we're running for a weather flow by Tempest weather station, which I have one. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's a good weather station. There's all sorts of stuff you can do with it. Uh, it's got a great it lightning keep the system. Cockroaches. It doesn't keep the cockroaches out. In Sometimes in Florida, cockroaches will crawl in them. <laughs> <laughs> but but it's uh it's it's pretty good weather station it's got a, a lot of uh integrations you can do with iftt and home automation it's just an excellent uh weather station 
actually, um, it comes with a forecast too. That's uh, AI driven and it's, it's pretty good. Um, it's enough for my uses. They have a big network, a lot of, uh, home weather stations out there. So, yep. Yeah. A few, a few hundred dollars. So, um, if you're interested, uh, in having a chance at one of those for free, get the, get 10 to 25 of your closest friends and signing up for the triple point podcast. So, so what's been going on in your neck of the woods, brother? It's been a busy week. Lots of, uh, lots of things going on. I, uh, have a couple news articles I was going to talk about today that were kind of interesting. I think I'll talk about the controversial one first. I don't know well, if it's I like better. Controversy. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, I bring up a lot of Florida stuff. I moved back to Florida because I like Florida, but it's not without its occasional controversy. And right now, Florida had, well, for the last couple of years, Florida has been undergoing an insurance crisis, particularly with property insurance, homeowners insurance and other types of building and property insurance. And the markets have been totally whacked out on that. You have insurance companies leaving. A lot of it's due to like corruption and just bad incentives in the market. Some of it's due to the climate change and the climate extremes. And just, we've had this crazy amount of number of hurricanes, you know, in the last couple of decades. You know, when I grew up here, my first 18 years of my life, there, other than Hurricane Andrew and a couple hurricanes here and there, there weren't really a lot that came across like the central Florida peninsula. There just weren't. Just, there was a- Especially major hurricanes. Yeah, yeah. there was just a, a lull in major hurricanes in that couple decade period. Well, in that time, a lot of people moved to Florida during that, you know, during those couple of decades. Anyway- the controversy of the article, um, it says, amid Florida insurance crisis, investors and senators see opportunity. Senator Joe Gruders, Republican of Sarasota, pitched fellow lawmakers to invest in a new insurance company out to make millions after changes in state law. Okay, I'm not accusing the senator of any crime or anything, but it on the surface looks really odd to start an investment business and insurance right after you've just voted on some laws for the insurance market. I mean, does it after Hurricane Ian just swept through Sarah yeah. <laughs> last year? But then I'm like looking at myself, I'm like, I just I just pushed a a weather sensor, right? Like, is this is affiliate marketing? Is that wrong? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. And this coffee mug. I mean, I just pushed this coffee mug. So we have this really interesting dynamic in our in our world, actually, like we're going to talk about this a little bit later about the, you know, government private partnerships, but like, when is it a conflict of interest? When is it good for the economy? When is it good for the society? These are all complicated things, right? I think full transparency is obviously a key, key factor. Oh yeah, in a lot for of sure. This. So no, I, was, I was just going to say to cap this article off, it, it's a pretty long Tampa Bay times article. There's uh, more references and more discussion about the context of it. And I, and I would encourage our listeners to look at the full context. Like I said, this could be totally on the up and up, at least on the surface, it just has the appearance of a little bit of strangeness. And, I, and I've noticed, you know, when I was, when we were active duty, I didn't get involved in state politics at all. I, I'm not even involved in state politics now. But when you start looking at state politics, it gets kind of interesting about how legislatures pass things and then immediately there's a benefit or not benefit. And, and you also look at like the, the federal congressional 
legislative leaders, sometimes they they have investments in things that are related to what they're legislating. And it's it's like, okay, this is interesting. So to bring this back to the podcast, right? Like what are the incentives people are using to make these decisions, right? Are they personal incentives? Anyway, go ahead, Ryan. No, I'm just going to scale it. Um, well, first off, before, before I scale this conversation to beyond Florida, you mentioned the word context and, and context is just like so important um, in everything that I try, try to do is trying to go back to the you know, context. And, you know, I, I've got friends or family that say, oh, this news article said X, Y or Z or like the climate's the worst it's ever been or whatever the case is. And they're like, OK, let's take a step back and let's dive deeper below the, the catchy, flashy headline. Right. Because there's often a lot of context. Like one of the things that I, I look at too is like we, we talk about billion dollar disasters um, and the number of billion dollar disasters has gone up. Okay, well, the context that here is number one, inflation is part of this, but number two, we're actually responding and choosing to fund the response and recovery more than we did decades ago. So there are going to be more billion dollar disasters because we are paying more attention to them. Now, there may be more you know, extreme events kind of happening too, but it's kind of muddied by that. So, I mean, like the context is important, but to scale your, your insurance, um, you know, to the broader, it's not just Florida that's, you know, kind of experiencing this. You got, uh, Louisiana, California, even Texas. A lot of these States are uh, experiencing, um, this situation where insurance companies, big insurance companies like state farm, are just like walking out of those states and saying, I'm not doing insurance because of the increased wildfires in California. So like the, the US senators, like they're the lawmakers in, in Congress are having inquiries now and they they're trying, they're poking the insurance industry to they want a heads up for you know their constituents across the nation on what other states are you thinking about backing out of? Yeah. Well, what's concerning to me, or like when you start reading some of these articles, and again, you got to peel back the onion and get to the truth, and that's hard in today's society. But it seems like at least some of the accusations are that these companies are making bank, if you will, they're making lots of money even on their exits, meaning they're, which that's kind of the purpose of a business. But if you don't fulfill your primary obligation of, following through insuring people like if you're just dropping people in the middle of a crisis there's a moral problem with that in my mind maybe you can get by with it from a corporate or financial or maybe even legal but there is a there's a moral obligation in my opinion that if you're an insurance company you're offering insurance and you can't pay out something that you owe then you should pay that right but i think some of these companies may be actually kind of skirting around the edges on that on, in, in many cases. Well, this is where it gets really, it's really tricky because there's, there is that balance or that interplay with public and private. Like there's a, there's a role for like legislation often ties the hands of insurance companies. Sometimes it can, it can help. You know, there's just, it's just really, it's just really difficult. And so when you've got an increasing number of events. So like, for instance, we're gonna go even scale even broader beyond the US here. We have storm CRN whipping up Western Europe, you know, the highest, some of the highest winds how, how that did they've you, seen. How do you pronounce it? I don't know, CRN. That's C-I-A-R-A-N. Is and that Karen? 
Maybe Ka- it's Karn. I don't know. You, you got to get this you, right, you, Ryan. You, yeah. All right. Anyway, it does have it does have a little uh, accent on the first A. So, okay, I've, uh, I'm, anyway. I'm done. I, whenever there's an accent, I just toss me out. I'm. But anyway, 100 mile an hour winds with this storm. You've got Hurricane Otis in the Eastern Pacific last week that went from tropical storm to category five, ripped up Acapulco. So you get these storms that are rolling around and in insurance companies, maybe Idalia, Hurricane Idalia is another good example, you know, that hit Great Bend area of, of Florida. That area hadn't been hit in over 100 years. And so insurance companies have kind of moved in there. They're, they're used to not having to respond to claims and all of a sudden they get one storm and they don't build their models, uh, their insurance models to withstand those shocks, which is, you know, that's kind of what you're supposed to do as an insurance. Yeah. I'm not an insurance expert and, and I don't pretend to an be. an actuary or whatever no. they call Yeah, I don't know. I mean, like, I, you know, if I... If I had plenty of time, I would sit down and try to calculate these things out and figure out what, like, I feel like the pendulum is kind of swinging a little bit extreme in the one way, which is like, let's flee every year. You know, like, I, and I'm not sure that's the right approach either, right? Like, even financially, like, because clearly if investors are finding opportunity, like this uh, state senator or whatever, then this still potentially insurable or whatever, or or they're going to do just like they've done every five to 10 years, which is take people's money and then flee, take people's money and then flee, take, you know, and so if that's what's happening, then that's a broken system. Well, yeah, exactly. So I think this is all related to what we're going to talk today uh, with Wayne about um, and in the sense that, you know, public private partnerships is, is important. We're not, ta- we're not going to talk about legislation. We're not going to talk about politics or insurance, uh, I think, in this discussion. But what we are going to talk about is that, you know, the relationship between, you know, private industry and a government organization like NOAA, in this case, great stuff, uh, technology transfer. He's working in the technology transfer office. And so I, I'm looking forward to chatting with him. And he's got a really diverse and cool background to, to dive into. So I'm looking forward to chatting with him. What do you say we bring him on? Yeah. Hey, Ryan, let's bring him on. All right, so Wayne McKenzie is NOAA's Technology Transfer Program Manager in the Technology Partnerships Office. In this role, he manages NOAA research to commercialization efforts, which includes NOAA's intellectual property portfolio and cooperative research and development agreements or CREATAs. Prior to his current role, Wayne helped migrate data processing systems to the cloud, commissioned level two derived products for the next generation geostationary weather satellites, was a satellite data researcher at the University of Alabama in Huntsville and also spent time as a broadcast meteorologist for a local TV station in Huntsville, Alabama. He earned his MBA from American Public University, Master's in Atmospheric Science from the University of Alabama at Huntsville, and Bachelor's in Meteorology from Millersville University. In his spare time, and I think this is my favorite part of his background, Wayne is a student of comedy where he performs comedic improv and is working towards his private pilot license. Welcome to the Triple Point Podcast, Wayne. Hi, guys. Thanks for uh, for having me. I have a question for you, Wayne. At what time do most people go to the dentist? You know, <laughs> I actually, uh, I, I, I can see in the video you have the dad jokes book out. So I think I know where this is going to go, uh, but uh, I don't know. At 2.30. 
Yep. <laughs> there we go. There we yeah, go. Wait, ha, how how was my joke, Wayne? <laughs> I think I I think it was good. I think it's a good start. All right. We can <laughs> we can keep them on the podcast. All right, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> uh well, welcome to the show, brother. It's uh it's been a while since uh we've we've had a chance. Well, actually it hasn't been that long since you and I had a chance to interact, but You've got a really awesome and unique background. One of the first things we always like to ask our guests is, how would you describe your journey? Uh, I would describe my journey as a roller coaster. It's kind of, you know, I, I was I was thinking about this uh, the other day. And, you know, if I were to ask myself uh, where I'd be today when I was an undergrad, it definitely wouldn't be what I'm doing now, right? So uh, <laughs> I think that's really the testament to the fact that you know, a lot of times we have ideas when we're younger of where we want our career to be or where, where it's going to go. And reality is that's usually not how it sort of pans out. Right. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, for me doing sort of the broadcast side to, you know, doing and doing operational forecasting through research, through system engineering, through really kind of computers, software engineering to doing what I do now, which is managing intellectual property and trying to really put a business hat on to get NOAA research out the door. It's been a very interesting ride. But you know, the unique thing I want to say to that, I really believe that a lot of times when we have these really diverse experiences, it builds a very unique perspective that really kind of sets you apart from others. So uh, so I it, it's I call it a roller coaster ride, but it's been a really fun ride. Now that's cool. I I haven't heard someone say the roller coaster ride before, but it makes a lot of sense. I think everyone we've had on this show has had kind of a similar kind of take and is like people kind of have an idea where they think they might be. But, you know, when you look back at your career over the last 10, 20 years, you know, it, it takes twists and turns. And sometimes it's just a go with the flow kind of role. So your, your current role is, is actually really well tailor-made for what we talk about on this podcast. We talk about the intersection of weather and climate, technology, and how it all applies to society. And, and you're sitting right at that intersection uh, within, within NOAA. So I'm used to hearing about how industry technologies get transferred to use by the government. Tell us more about what you're doing in this office, this technology partnership office, what you're doing in that role and some of the things that NOAA has been working on to transfer technology. What are some of the examples of the technology y'all are transferring? Yeah. So, uh, you know, for, for me, um, I, I told maybe a little story, right? When, when I was in undergrad or no grad school, it's grad school. I was at the University of Alabama Huntsville. We, the, the research team I was working on, John Mezikowski, who Ryan will, will talk I'm sure we'll talk more about that a little bit later, but we were, we were developing an algorithm and the university wanted to patent it. And I remember sitting back, thinking back then, like, you know, oh, okay, like, why, why are we doing this? First off, I didn't realize we could do this. It was kind of this new concept of filing a patent and, and going through that process. So fast forward to 2021, uh, I find out that well, Noah can do this. And I had no idea. I've been with Noah a long time. I had no idea that this was even something we could do at Noah, which is patent thing. And so, you know, a lot of what I do is focused on taking research developed at Noah, and we want to transition that out to the commercial world. Back in the 80s, 
uh, early 80s, actually, is where a lot of this, the statutes that uh, govern what I do came out. And really what it, what it was centered on was trying to help with the stagflation problem back in the early 80s. And it was trying to get federally funded research out into the commercial market so that way we can get some economic development. So 1980 is when a lot of these statutes came out. Uh, they've been revised over the years, like in 86 and 2000. Uh, just that sort of just uh, follows the trend of how things go. So Wayne, um, Wayne, can I interrupt you yeah. for a minute? So yeah. let me let me clarify this. So you're talking primarily about getting federally funded research into the commercial market. So you're talking about going from government to commercial. Is that what I heard? That is correct. So that's yep. often different, Ryan, than what we encountered, at least in our career, which was the attempt of, you know, pulling in commercial uh, intellectual property or commercial types of uh, research into or academic and types of research and bring that into the government and, and operationalizing it. So it's a slightly different flow, actually. OK, go ahead. Wait. Yeah, yeah, it, it is. And, and, you know, what's nice about it is that it allows us to really try to get adoption of what's going on in government. DOD does this, especially at their uh, the, the research labs at, across DOD. They're also doing the same thing. Uh, and they look at it, uh, DOD and NOAA are kind of similar uh, in the standpoint that we have an operational mission, right? DOD support the warfighter. At NOAA, our job is to support either National Weather Service or Ocean Service or Fishery Service. And so we, you know, we have a little bit of a unique situation. Other agencies like Department of Energy, they are more focused on, they don't really have an operational component. So they're more focused on trying to get research in their labs out the door. And so they, DOE specifically, and even NASA to, to some degree, they're really trying to get that research commercialized. For us at NOAA, our primary mission is really to support that operational mission. And so a lot of the research that, or a lot of the transition that my, I do is really for, focused on sort of this secondary use, right? It's like, okay, we're, we're building tools that meet some requirement that go towards the weather service. But, you know, there's this other, you know, private industry, right? That's going on sort of parallel that maybe could also benefit from the use of that technology. Uh, so it's really trying to broaden the use. And, and we have different tools in our tool belt that we could pull out to try to help facilitate that transition. Open source is one of those. So in some cases that makes sense, but there's other tools as well that we can utilize to, to get that out there. So it's just some quick examples. Um, and, and this is a really common one. Science on a sphere. If you ever go to a, a local museum, really they're in a lot of museums, but, but if you go to a NOAA facility, you'll see a science on a sphere. That was a patented technology about 20 years ago that came out of NOAA. And it's, it is really sort of taken off. And, and we have those being installed all across the world, uh, not just in the U.S. But we also do other things like trying to uh, build a fishing net that allows turtles to escape. Uh, this is something that, you know, the fish, commercial fishing market uh, really needs because there are requirements and rules that they have to follow to ensure that those that that. Uh, marine mammals or turtles don't get caught up in fishing nets. And so, you know, NOAA researchers have developed a fishing net that allows turtles to escape. And so we have such a unique mission at NOAA that, you know, we, we sometimes come up with really cool technologies that we really want to get out the door. 
So that's really a lot of what I do. It's managing intellectual property, trying to work with industry to get that commercialized. But then there's another component, which is the CRADAs, the Cooperative Research and Development Agreements. And this is a tool that we have, actually most uh, federal agencies have that allow private industry or nonprofits or state local governments to work with the federal government uh, to solve problems and do some of this joint development and research activities to solve a problem that aligns to the mission of the lab. So those tools are incredibly flexible. We use them to do things like bring in expertise to the government, or maybe the government has expertise to share with private industry. It allows that collaborative sharing of information, sharing of resources. So like maybe computing resources, maybe facilities. We have unique facilities at NOAA across the U.S. that private industry sometimes wants to use. And so create as a mechanism for us to do that. They're very flexible and the beauty of them. Well, really the reason why they're so flexible is because we have uh, no money that comes out of the government. Anytime you involve money, right? Things get a little, little, you know, little hairy. So we, we take the money out of the equation and we have all this flexibility. And that's the really nice thing with Kratos. When the government or NOAA in this case has a patent, on something like a net, a fishing net, or the weather on a sphere. How is that licensed out? How, how, how do you license that out to a commercial entity? That's a really great question. So uh, we have a couple of different options that enable us to license. And, and typically, we'd like to look at what makes most sense for adoption. So we can do non-exclusive licenses to companies. So that means we could theoretically license it to multiple companies, uh, the same technology. We can also do exclusive licenses. And it's, it really depends on the situation, right? Uh, what are we trying to do to get, uh, or how do we get best adoption and also enable a company to want to invest? That's the whole point behind doing a patent and then licensing that, that, that patent out to private industry is because a lot of times they're going to have to provide investment money to make that technology mature enough to be scaled in production. And so if we can provide some level of protection uh, to that company through a license, whether it's non-exclusive or in some cases exclusive, it protects their investment to scale it. So those are usually the two uh, options we have. Uh, sometimes we'll even do uh, open source, right? So, so let's say we patent something, but we want to make sure that whoever uses it builds it to a particular standard, right? And, and this actually is pretty common use case on the uh, fishery side of the house where we, we know that it's a niche market. It's a small market. We're not necessarily, you know, going to, you know, a company may invest in this, but they're not going to make billions of dollars, right? So how do we enable them? to build this in a particular way. And we want to make sure it's built to a specific standard. So we will give licenses, maybe with no royalties back to us, but we'll give a license that requires them to build it to a particular standard. And that can help with some of the regulatory side of the fishery side of the house as one example. So the, it, it really depends. And I always tell people, right, this is case by case uh, and how we do this because Every case is unique and, and we sometimes want to take a look at what is the best way to get adoption. That's our end goal, uh, whether that's exclusive licensing, non-exclusive, open source, you know, whatever it may be. Uh, that's usually how we look at it. Wayne, we're on your website, on the Technology Partnerships Office website. 
looks like there's lots of great links on there. Um, is that the best place for our listeners to go and look for some of these transfer opportunities? Yeah, all our licensing opportunities are on our website. So feel free to go to a techpartnerships.no.gov. Okay, awesome. Yeah, I'm hoping we're trying to foster an audience and community of, of business builders and leaders and people that want to take the information that we're sharing here and do something with it. So awesome. It sounds like you kind of stumbled on this office and, you know, I was really shocked. I didn't realize this office existed. Uh, like Jeff alluded to and I alluded to earlier, like we're used to hearing about industry technology going into the government. We're not used to hearing about, about going the other way around. And it's really great to hear that there's dual use, multi-use kind of uh, mindset on technology that, okay, yeah, we, the government, you know, procures or gets funds this research or whatever the case is for a specific purpose. But then if there's secondary tertiary benefits, then it sounds like y'all are squeezing all the juice out of that investment that, uh, you know, taxpayer dollars are going into. So I, I think that's, that's awesome. You mentioned earlier investment or money being, you know, is money's always, you know, kind of a, I see it as a benefit, but also a hurdle if you don't have that money. What, what are some of the biggest hurdles or challenges you've seen in your time there in getting technology transferred out into the commercial space? Yeah. So, um, my, obviously money's the big thing, right? And so when we look at the barriers to entry, right. And, and I always talk about, I think a lot of people think, well, open, if we open source everything, they will come. It's like the mindset, right? You, if you build it, they will come. Right. What I've discovered and learned through this, and I used, I, I, I still to some degree kind of believe that um, with the open source. But if you look at the mechanics behind it, what is the real barrier, right, to, to open source? And what I've noticed, especially in the hardware space, that the biggest barrier is investment, it's money, right? Because if you're building something, uh, especially hardware, there's a lot of money that has to go into prototyping, building out the scaling out the manufacturing, et cetera. So I've found open source hardware to be companies are very reluctant to, to touch that. Open source software, different ballgame. Because if you think about it, cloud computing has brought down the cost of compute and storage. And now it's very easy for someone to take open source software and incorporate that into their, their workflows. The investment required to do that is very low. So that's why I think open source software makes sense. Uh, open source hardware is a different ball game. It's just, it's more money is required. Prototyping is not uh, cheaper. Maybe one day when 3D printing takes off, that could potentially change it, but we're still a ways away from that. And it's not still not necessarily easy to do 3D printing. So it's still a barrier there. A lot of companies are still reluctant to, to get in. So that's one thing. The other thing I would say is a hurdle is we have at NOAA a pretty niche market, right? We're, we're building things that are really uh, trying to solve a particular problem for NOAA. So a lot of times what happens is we find out about this technology when it's at a higher TRL, right? Technology readiness level. Uh, and that's actually a NASA term. NOAA, we call them readiness levels. But essentially, they're the same thing. And it's really about how mature a technology is. So 
we find out about it at NOAA, usually when it's a little bit later on the TRL scale, what that means is a lot of design decisions have went into it. And the technology is, is designed to solve a particular problem. Now, sometimes the private industry will come in and say, design decisions were made that were you know, more expensive than what we would normally do. It's the concept of what is good enough, right, for the private sector. And so that can be somewhat of a challenge, right? We'll, we'll have a technology and private industry will come in and say, mm, the way it's designed right now is pretty expensive. It's going to cost us a lot of money to sort of reverse engineer it to make it such that we can use less expensive components and parts, et cetera. So that's a little bit of a, a hurdle as well. But, but yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's really, uh, we, we talk about these hurdles. I, I see these more of fun challenges. I, we're not alone in this. Other agencies are, are trying to f- uh, figure this all out and do what's best. Because ultimately, right, if, if you think of this as a, a big circle, right, federal money comes in to fund federal research. We hopefully can mature it. I'm going to use this term de-risk it, basically make the technology more available so that way private sector investment can occur to take it to the next level, which would then generate economic development and economic growth, which would then continue to fund research and development. So. It's this cycle that we're trying to to keep up and and try to to keep moving forward with. Are you sensing that more of the technology you're transferring is on the software side of the house rather than hardware? That's a great question. I, I think at NOAA, we're mostly a software shop, right? A lot of what NOAA does is software-based. So a lot of things like our computer weather models We've released Epic, the Earth Prediction Innovation Center, where you can now go in and download and run NOAA weather models on your own systems. And we're continually expanding that. That's been a really successful program where we're trying to also build community development into that. So we're mostly centered, I would say, at NOAA on software. We do have hardware components that are usually either centered around atmospheric monitoring constituent monitoring in the atmosphere, also in the oceans, as well as uh, fishing uh, improvements and things like that. So I would say mostly at NOAA, we're software, uh, but we do have a hardware component. And it's somewhere in, there's some range in that uh, upper 50% range where you see the cutoff between software and hardware, somewhere between probably uh, 60 and probably 80% um, software versus hardware. So Wayne, um, kind of diving down into the weeds for a minute. So it's obviously been a thing for the last couple of years, artificial intelligence, machine learning. More recently in the last week or so, there have been some articles and some PA releases from Google and some others regarding some pretty major improvements in weather and climate modeling with AI. Um, and so like one of the articles that I've got here in our reference that'll be in our show notes, it says, uh, the race is on to bring AI to weather forecasting. And so, uh, anyway, different, you know, the UK Met Office is in the mix and the US NOAA is also examining how its forecasters utilize AI. What sort of things are you guys, is your office doing uh, with that? Yeah, it's a great question around AI. It's, and it's, and I, I say it's a great question because there's a lot of unanswered uh, parts to that question that we're still trying to figure out. In the intellectual property world, there's a lot of uncertainty around AI, right? For example, who owns the output from AI? 
probably see a lot of in the news about that. And there's a lot to be answered. I know there was an executive order that came out recently on on artificial intelligence that's trying to bring a little bit more clarity to it. There's still a lot of questions around is AI patentable and in even with software patentability. Yeah. Uh, that's that's always been an open thing as well. So I think at least in intellectual property, there's a lot of unanswered questions regarding AI. Well, it's but it's interesting. Like I've seen on LinkedIn and some in some other social media sites, authors of books, like technical books, complaining that they think and in some cases they've demonstrated some sort of proof that, you know, some of these like open AI chat GPT and some other, you know, there's, there's a couple different LLMs out there that are uh, public are actually using data that may not be public, uh, to train their models. And, uh, I think there was some concern that, you know, using copyrighted material that's that you have to pay for, <laughs> Uh, to train your model and then reserving out answers from question, you know, from the models from that is, yeah, you know, that, that definitely needs to be answered. I think from a legal perspective, it well, you seems- scale that, I mean, like scale that from, okay. So the copyright issues, it's an issue cheating on tests and, and research papers. And then you, you scale even to the, the far end of things, which is the nefarious use of AI or machine learning, at least to, you know, dupe systems and deep fakes and generative AI. And we're, we're heading into a really complex, well, the world's already complex, right? But we're heading into this world where we don't know what's reality anymore um, in, in a lot of cases. And so it's interesting to, I'd be interested to, and maybe you're not able to comment specifically on this, Wayne, but like we can have a general conversation, like how is Noah, how is how is the government doing? I think that's what this executive order that you alluded to is, is trying to get after. Like, how is how is the federal government going to use AI responsibly, but also make sure that we do better to understand when AI is not being used responsibly, right? But before we dig into that real quick, I wanted to take a couple steps back. So to the point I was making with the the open, like chat GPT or others, using closed sources or sources that are copyrighted and or you have to pay for to get a copy of in some ways it's like large-scale theft isn't it i mean like in other words like if a user is getting stealing that intellectual property right yeah because like if you have this vacuum that vacuums up all the money out of people's couch cushions and you use that and then like you you give it i don't know it just it seems like there's something not quite right with it. Like there needs to perhaps be some sort of licensing approach there, you know, just like, uh, so one, one expert in the field analogized it to Napster early on, you know, digitizing music and selling digital music files was considered, you know, taboo until they could put the DRM, the digital rights management in there. So maybe we're just ahead of that stage and needs to happen. Okay, uh, now we can go on to the, to the rest of it. I really felt like we needed to cover that. But do you? No, I think that's important. <laughs> yeah. I mean, because part of what I think part of what Wayne, your office does is is you know manage the intellectual property of Noah, right? Whether it's through patents or whatever the case is, right? Yeah, and and to on, on that topic, right around um, trying to you know this 
this idea of these large language models using copyrighted material, you could even expand that to say that are they using open source uh, information and violating the licenses of those open source, that open source information, right? For example, a lot of times with, with open source licensing, yeah, and it's freely available to be used, even commercially, but they require attribution. Well, are large language models giving the attribution? And when I specifically asked one for its citations, it did not respond with, here are the citations. It said, I can't do this. <laughs> <I'm sorry. laughs> There's a lot of unanswered questions. To your point, uh, Jeff, I think about the you know Napster analogy. I think there's some similarities here where this is this is new. It's really taken off. And I think we're trying to we'll come into some kind of balance at some point soon. Well, what that balance is, is to be. Determined. Yeah. Well, and the thing is, is like, so I'm I'm openly a customer open AI's chat GPT. I pay the twenty dollars a month, but I'm sitting there thinking to myself, if indeed they had some even public sources of data, but didn't properly attribute or didn't properly potentially compensate those sources for training their model, that $20 is going to open AI, but it's not going to the people that created it. Right. And so it, yep. it just, it, you know, so I, we have a website with triple point, right? You have to have a subscription to get some content, but most of our content is on the site in some ways, you know, I want Google search engine to be able to see our site and, and, categorize all the words so people can find our content which seo is hard to figure out as it is now you add in like uh, open ai and these large language models that are scrolling the web and pulling stuff off there i could be making up crap i know ryan is making up crap half the time so like <laughs> when we put it on our website what's the veracity of that right i guess that's the general internet problem anyway but anyway there's all sorts of interesting things that um that are going on yeah, with we, AI. We, we can we can pull apart that we can pull apart multiple things ryan making up crap or or, or jeff dating himself with napster references <laughs> hey i was never on myspace i will just say that i was never on myspace and i was a late adopter to facebook which is now the old person social network <laughs> <laughs> All right, wait, let's let's rein this back in a little bit. So, so wait, no, it's actually really good conversation because wait, 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 like, let, wait, 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 we're getting too serious here. Wayne, talk to us about your improv. I, I gotta know. So, all right, I, I, I'll admit right here, I bought some comedy books three or four or five years ago, and I try because I, I, I like kind of public speaking. I like doing stuff like that, and I. I'd understood that comedy improves that sort of thing, right? So talk to us about your 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 improv and what you do with this. Yeah, so, imp you know, it's funny. I think a lot of people equate improv to whose line is it anyway? And that is a form of improv. We call it short Which is form hilarious, but yes. Yeah, <laughs> it, 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 it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. I mean, you get to do like little crazy things over a short period of time. Uh, I do more what's called long, long form improv. So think of that to think of literally building something from nothing. Wait, over you mean, a, you mean like a 20 minute period, Mr. Bean? Uh, well, uh, he, he, well, oh, so yeah, I Jeff will say he is improv. 
But the thing with Mr. Bean is that he has props. He has chairs. He has a ring. When you do long-form improv, you have nothing. And you ha- and it's all sort of make-believe world. So you're kind of building the scene. You have yeah. to describe the couch. I spend a lot you of time You have to there. describe the room you're in. So it's so, it's a lot so of describing. When you're, when, you're, when you're doing that, is, is it with yourself? Or, I mean, because I'm thinking about, like, the dynamics between multiple people and so is it mostly just individuals or like a group so it's it can be individuals i i have never done single person improv myself because that like pantomiming i suppose (laughs) it's it is not easy i'll just say um i think that uh but remember like if you think about it take a step back and think of improv sort of in in a big picture Improv has structure. A lot of people think improv is just just craziness. No, there's a there's a format and structure we follow. And that helps build the high-level structure for us to play within. And so really the at the core, the the thing with improv, if and if you've ever taken an improv class, the first thing you'll always hear them say is yes and right. The word yes, I hear you, and I'm going to add to it. That's the key tenet of improv. And improv, I always tell people, improv, yeah, allows us to be goofy and funny and do like crazy things. But it also teaches us to listen actively. We don't listen enough in the world today. Just my personal opinion on that one. I, but I, it teaches I agree. you to actively I've already, pla- listen. I've already planned my question for you, Wayne, because I'm thinking about it right now. I'm no, not listening to you. Go ahead. Get Jeff, is, Jeff is a perfect example of, of not listening because he's focused on the perfect, his, his next bad question. Example. I'm the bad example here. No, you're, it's not just that example. <laughs> you can go back to all of our podcasts. All right, like, the most I've important, got another squirrel to go, another rabbit hole. The most you. important recommendation out of this entire podcast this morning, today, are going to be your book recommendations or how can people learn to do improv? Like, so... If you, oh. if you can think of it right now, you can say it. If not, we'll put it in the show notes or we'll still put it in the show notes if you can also. So improv the book titles. <laughs> no. Do you have any recommendation? I will do one better. Take a class at your local improv theater. That's, All local improv that's theaters serious. take classes. Okay, that's, that's yeah. serious. Take an intro. And most of them have an intro to improv thing. It's maybe an hour and really what it does is it makes you take yourself less seriously, right? It, it teaches you to listen, got- teaches you to get out of your head. Jeff, you said you have the next question in your head while I'm talking. That means you're not listening to what? me. So you have, it teaches you <laughs> to listen and get out of your head. Could, could you, <laughs> Jeff, Wayne, what he's telling you, you to take, he's telling you to take an improv class is what he's telling you. To I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to find one. I'm going to see if one of my kids wants to join me, if they can do multi-agent. You should totally do it. And and like what, so I took, I took improv in college in undergrad and it was my most favorite class I had. Aren't weather people like naturally improvising at doing improv? Like, and that's why I did it because when I, I actually missed when I was in television as a broadcast meteorologist, I, and I got out. I was I was kind of missing, just kind of making things up and winging it, right? And, don't tell, and... don't tell people that. I just got accused of that this week. <laughs> like you get you get paid for being around fifty percent of the time. The millionth time in my life, I heard that yesterday. 
<laughs> yeah, but it, but it, I don't it, even do weather forecasting anymore. I've tried to. I'm doing the night fan here. I don't do weather <laughs> forecasting. Anymore. You're not a former military guy. <laughs> I, I tell you, it it really. I think it's really great. I think everyone really should take the intro class. You just get to be goofy, right? You just get to do weird things. And really, one of the first things you'll do in that class is they're going to tell you, like, stand in the middle of a circle and just make, like, a funny sound and a funny face and do something funny, right? Like that. And and you're like, oh, God, like, I can't do this around all these strangers. No, who cares? Do it. Yeah. Right? Like, <laughs> well, I mean, know, that's it's, it's it the, down. I mean, breaking down those personal barriers to not take yourself so seriously. And I think there's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of career lessons that can be learned. There's a lot of life lessons that can be learned. Most people who know me usually know me as someone who's generally unfiltered. Um, I mean, I, I, I don't go off the, off the top rope or anything like that, but I mean, like, but I think a class like that in my college days opened me up to just not really not necessarily not care what other people think or, or you, you know, guys, but like you guys hey, should hear what he says to me when we're not recording. <laughs> yeah. Abuse. It's, it's, it's pretty, it, it's not abusive. You call it abusive. I call it constructive anyway. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, like, is that helping you go into some of these meetings? You think about like staff meetings or whatever the case is or, co- you know, workshops and this and that most people psychologically, are geared towards the inward and like they want to protect their ego. They want to protect their persona and they don't want anything to damage that. And so a lot of times people have a lot of things they want to say, but they don't say them. They keep them internal. I'm up there. I'm saying things that other people in the room probably want to say. Maybe not. I don't know. But I've had people come up to me after those meetings and be like, thank you for saying that. I didn't have the courage to say that, but uh, I, I, I'm glad you said it because it needed to be said. Th- thank you for. I quack- mean, have you seen that in your yeah, experience, yeah, th- Wayne? Th- thank you for quacking like a duck. I wanted to do that my entire life. <laughs> quacking like a <laughs> duck. Do, make, it, make a noise. You just make a random noise in front of. The- Could be an elephant noise. You never know. I, See, I would say that <laughs> Ryan is taking himself too seriously right now. He was all furious, and I said, "Well, you didn't quack like a duck. You, you talked about quacking like a duck." Well, I'm not there yet, yeah. Ryan. I have to build up to it. I'm gonna have to take a class. I'm gonna take. A class. Well, you should probably go go take your class at Stetson. Stet- no, they're too expensive. I'm gonna go to Daytona State College. <laughs> I I think uh, to your point, Ryan. I I think you know. Here here's my philosophy. And, and I may have this all wrong. I don't know. But I really think laughter is like the best medicine, right? And we all need to laugh a little bit more. And so I, my goal when I go into pretty much every meeting, most meetings, probably not. There's some meetings that, you know, it's like, we're this Fire, work. But, firing somebody. Uh, <laughs> you know, Dis- discipline. typically, right, I, I try to go in. And I want to see someone laugh, right? Like I want it to be enjoyable. I want, you know, and, and, and also I think if you think back to, to you, you want to, usually when we talk, right, we want to be heard and we want to be memorable. I think everyone wants to be heard in the world, right? So, so if we can enable a that discussion, that's, that, what, that's why we have that a brings podcast. It down. That's why we have a podcast. We want to be heard. Right. You want to be heard. 
and, want to be heard. And we talk, and so, we talk over <laughs> our guests like I'm doing that. <laughs> Let the man talk, yeah. man. Jeez Louise. But, but, but it's like, well, he's excited, you know, and he wants to be heard. He so I'm excited. letting him be heard. Uh, I, I think, I really think that, you know, if, if you think back to those memorable periods, it's usually those lighthearted conversations. And I think it also brings a level of humility, which I think is always important, uh, especially when you can interject a little bit of comedy. So I always try to, I always, if I can, if my goal is I want to see at least one person smile uh, when, when I'm in a meeting. So if I see someone smile, I've checked the box and I've said, all right, we've had success here. And it really, I, I really think it, it and, and the other thing too, is it allows people to feel more comfortable with being open. To your point, Ryan, about, you know, you, you say things and people are like, thank you for saying that. If you make it structured and rigid and serious looking faces, people are going to be nervous. They're going to be intimidated to say something. But, but if I come in and, and, you know, maybe tell a joke or make someone laugh, they're going to feel more relaxed and more comfortable by saying whatever it is they want to say. And, and it gives a, it sort of like sets that safe space for them to feel more comfortable. So that's, it's worked really well for me. It's allowed me to, I've only been in supervisory positions a couple of times in my career. I've had more success not being supervisory by following uh, a lot of the principles of improv and, and getting people to move forward and, and getting projects to move forward uh, by, by doing that. So I would say it's brought a lot of success. I would encourage people to take improv classes and you will, it'll change your, it'll completely change your perspective. That That's a great, I mean, one of the things that we always ask our guests towards the end of our, our, our time with them is, is advice for, especially our, our the young, younger generation that listens to this podcast, maybe up and coming meteorologist, you know, go out there. It sounds like that, you know, I took an improv class in college. Absolutely loved it. Got a lot of benefit out of it. You know, you're hearing that from Wayne as well. Wayne, what are what's some of the other advice that you have for uh, up and coming meteorologists uh, that are looking to come in and lead in this field? Yeah, I, I would say first and foremost, take it a pro class. But secondly, um, I always tell people take take the opportunities that you least expect. Right. Uh, I, I like for example, I. I think a lot of, well, I'm going to say something that may be slightly controversial, but I'm going to say it because I, I personally we started with really controversy. Let's, let's, let's finish uh, with it. I, so I never got the PhD. I started it, but I didn't finish it. Life got in the way, everything else. I firmly believe that the PhD programs do a disservice to a lot of folks that want to be leaders in the field because the PhD, if you think about it, fundamentally teaches you to be really focused at solving a very specific problem. It doesn't teach you to have a worldview and a large perspective. And so I see it where a lot of folks move into leadership roles that have PhDs and they're brilliant scientists, brilliant, but they struggle with the big picture. And so I always encourage folks, do things you least expect. Take a business class. I know when I was in uh, in college at both grad and undergrad, that was never on the table. I went and got my MBA later, but I, I would encourage you to take a business class, take that experience or internship that maybe isn't related to weather completely, right? Maybe it's something totally different because these little experiences that you do will help build a perspective that will be incredibly unique 
and will really set you up to be a change maker and a leader later. So take the things that you maybe are like, oh, why would I do that? You know, do it and see what happens, right? It's maybe change your perspective. You may learn something. The other thing I would say is, you know, uh, be open-minded. You, you, I think a lot of times when I started, I said, you know, if you would have asked me when I was in college, if this is what I'd be doing today, I said, no, I think that's true. And I think that, you know, you're, you're going to have an idea of what it is you want to do, but you have to be open-minded that that may not be the case. And you're going to have things pop up you least expect, and you need to be open to those. Uh, and see if it can help build your perspective. Because ultimately, right, the, the perspective that you build is what's going to make you unique. So that's my advice. <laughs> those, those are awesome. And, and I think Kathy Sullivan, former NOAA administrator, said this. And it's a mantra that when I was a commander, I encouraged my folks to do the same thing. But you and we generally... We learn more when we do things that make us uncomfortable sometimes. Yep. Uh, improv certainly does that. It forces you into a situation, but you learn more about yourself and, and the people around you. But, but by putting yourself in uncomfortable positions and excelling at them, I mean, putting yourself in an uncomfortable position and falling, you know, and, and hurting yourself is not the right thing to do, right? But I mean, like, Putting yourself in an uncomfortable position where if you fall, there's still, you know, a safety net there and that sort of thing. But it's, you learn the most. Yeah, it's more like doing squats than tripping and falling. I mean, it's like it's painful. <laughs> but <laughs> I, that really, Did you get I that like on your dad jokes? It's uh, just improv. No, I don't know. Is that, that may not be technically improv. I'll, I'll say one thing. One more real thing, too. Another piece of a little advice is get a lot of mentors that have very different experiences. So that way you have a, a fallback of people who can help guide you that have very different perspectives. Get a lot of mentors. Yeah, I, I like that a lot. I like learning from other people's good experiences and bad experiences. It helps Yeah, and you get to pick, and it's a smorgasbord. You get to pick and choose You know what you want to learn from each of them. So before we get to the lightning round, want to ask you one last question here and it's it's something that we've been asking our guests especially recently and uh it's our it's our prediction time after all it wouldn't be a weather and climate podcast oh wait it's a tech podcast sorry jeff anyway what's uh wayne what's one dramatic change you expect in the weather and climate world 10 years from now yeah i i so i'm gonna give uh a an answer i i thought long and hard on this one ai is the easy answer but i'm gonna give one that's more difficult I will say this. I think the world that we live in today, at least in the meteorological world, is going to be vastly different, both from a business perspective and even on the government side, I think. I would say the biggest thing, though, is probably going to be observations. We're seeing a lot of commercial companies who are building weather satellites now. We have companies that are collecting all kinds of data. I mean, our cell phones are barometers, right? They, they collect pressure measurements. How we use that data, I think, is a big question. And I think it's going to be incredibly revolutionary in 10 years. There's a lot of policy things I think we have to work out, like around privacy and, and, and other things. But how we figure out how to take all these observations and assimilate them into the models, right? And, and also have a framework for those, these, uh, this data to flow. I think is going to be incredibly revolutionary in 10 years. I would say the 
know, because this is a huge departure of what it used to be, right? It used to be the government collected all the observations and assimilated the models and got our weather forecast. Now we have all these companies that are collecting all these observational data sets, both in the ocean, on land, in space. How we get that data and use that data in our weather models, I think is going to be incredibly, incredibly different. And I think it's going to be uh, something that's going to change how we do things. Yeah, I think you're right. Our last guest, Don Birchoff, talked about creating public-private partnerships for the UAS and air taxi uh, industries mm -hmm. uh, with using commercial observations for that because you just can't, we can't afford to pay the pristine you know, airfield observations for, for everywhere. Right. So, um, so there, there will have to be a commercialization aspect of that. Um, and then, um, and yeah. And, and to add on to that, Jeff, it, the other part of this is, uh, the government can't afford to pay for all this data everywhere. So there has to be a way in which, you know, the, the companies can sell that data commercially and sell it to the government. And the government then is not fronting all the costs, right? right? So I think that is something that needs to be figured out. But I think once it is figured out, it's going to be a big change. Uh, and, and it's going to be a really positive change to our uh, modeling efforts. Well, I think your uh, your office is going to be, you know, uh, playing in uh, that sandbox for sure. So Wayne, it's been great to have you on the show. Let's, uh, let's wrap up the show with a quick lightning round. Uh, we like to ask our guests uh, these last three questions. So the first question is, what is the most memorable weather event in your life? 1996 blizzard of the, of the Northeast. Uh, I, I, was, I grew up in just south of Baltimore, and we got about two feet of snow. And back then, right, you couldn't work from home. So everything shut down, schools, and, and pretty much you just played with your friends and you watched local television, you know, because that's all you really could do. So 96, uh, Blizzard. Isn't it amazing to think about, like, you know, future generations not having snow days anymore or, you know, like, <laughs> or hurricane days, I guess, down here in, in Florida. So it's crazy. Yep. All right. Uh, beat your mountains. Ooh, I, I would have to say probably beach is where I would lean. The challenge is I like the mountains, but there's a lot of bugs in the mountains and the bugs like me. Beach has less bugs because of that sea breeze. So I'm going to probably lean towards the beach because less bugs. Nice. Nice. All right. I, I think I, I know what this one might be, but what's your superpower? <laughs> I would say uh, winging it. Uh, and and what I mean by that is trying to kind of just like going with the flow. Uh, I, I, I've seen people who, you know, they're very structured and, and when things don't go as planned, which is normally the working scenario, right? Nothing usually ever goes as planned. Uh, things crumble, right? They, they panic. They, oh gosh. And I, I just, and I think I learned this early in, in my life because I did television <laughs> is you don't know what's going to happen and you just have to go with it. And so being able to wing it, I think, is a skill that uh, people can learn, but it's really tough. This has uh, been excellent. And uh, you seem like the type of person I'd want to get to know. So and we didn't even we didn't even get to talking about his uh, his moving towards his private pilot license. Uh, but, but but Wayne, I guess that serves as a, a reason to have you on uh, again in a future podcast. It's been great having you on the triple point today. Thanks for joining us. 
Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, Jeff, if you want to get a beer sometime, just let me know. Sounds Shoot me good. a text. Sounds or good. anyone. I, I, I have a beer with anybody. But thanks for having me, guys. It's been a lot of fun. Well, we hope you enjoyed today's Triple Point Podcast. If you liked it, subscribe to our newsletter at triplepointpodcast.com. Give us a shout and a five-star rating on your favorite podcast station and tell your friends about it. Or you can email us at triplepointpodcast at the number 81degrees.com. Until next time, have a great week.